That's a song that whenever it plays on my iPad, I just play it again and again and again because that is what I want my prayer to be. God, take me out into places I've not been, to waters I've not treaded before. And sometimes that is a scary prayer when God answers it and he takes you places. I can remember whenever I was 19 years uh, old, had just finished my freshman year in college, and on May 26th got a phone call, uh, literally just back from college, and uh, somebody uh, had called me and asked me to do something I'd never done before. It was one of those moments. Now, I knew eventually I would do what they were going to ask me to do, but I didn't feel like at 19 I was anywhere equipped, ready to do what they were asking me to do. Now, when I tell you what it is, it's not going to be probably that big a deal to you. It was to me at 19. I was still popping pimples and, uh, and figuring things out in life, but I did know that God wanted to use me in ministry and called me to that. And it was actually a lady named Nellie that I had met the previous year and spent some time with Nellie. She was a senior. She lived in a residential home along with a bunch of other senior ladies. And I was asked by my lead pastor of the church I was growing up in to go there weekly and to share Bible study with these ladies, these older people who were finishing up their life, but they still loved Jesus and they still wanted to hear the word. And so I would go in my 18-year-old skin, very uneducated manner, and I would just waddle my way through a, a lesson, a Sunday school or something like that kind of lesson. And they just loved on me and I just loved on them. And we had a great time for, for a year. But a year after I was there, Nellie passed away. And her, her family called me and I had never met any of them. And they had asked me to do the funeral. Uh, that was, again, a very intimidating moment for me. Uh, not knowing exactly uh, how to do that, had not taken any classes on death and dying yet, hadn't got into my psych or minor, hadn't, hadn't had any training in that, and so it was a bit daunting. Since then, now I'm 24 years, this December, the last Sunday in December, I will celebrate 25 years in ministry. So I'm in my 24th year in ministry, and as in doing this, I've now performed many and been a part of many funerals, memorial services around the world, from West Africa to Southern Africa to Hickville, America, uh, to, to right here. In fact, even as early as just yesterday in this room, uh, yesterday evening, we had a celebration of life service for a man who I would consider young, especially since he was just a year older than I am, at 46, uh, pass away. And uh, as you go through these stages of life and you do these different acts, uh, God challenges you and he grows you through them. And whenever you come to the topic of death, especially whenever you are a part of a, a memorial service of somebody who passes at the age of 46, you ask a lot of why questions. I can tell you this, that after doing a lot of funerals and memorial services, there is nothing harder than doing one for a baby or doing one for a teenager because there are more why questions than I possibly have answers. I didn't have answers for the, for the man who passed away at 46 any more than I have for a baby. 
When you're taking in the prime of your life or when you're taking before your life even begins, you really wonder why. Why why all the pain? Why all the suffering? Because really when you come to death, death is this separation, is this, is this, is this finality about it that you just can't go back. There's no do-overs when it's over. And how do you get into that? How do you get through that dark season? A man at the age of 33 passed away, gave himself to passing away. His name was Jesus. You know the story. We've been talking about it for the past seven weeks. We've been looking at the last six hours for the past seven weeks in the last seven statements of Christ on the cross. If you've been with us through the journey, we come to the end today, and we look at these statements. And just in quick review, I want you to understand that we're not taking these statements lightly. They're not just haphazard statements that Jesus uttered or muttered from the cross. That these are powerful statements. These are statements that he is fulfilling prophecy that was dated back hundreds of years before he existed. On the earth, anyway. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And he was praying for those who who were literally ripping the clothes off of his body and gambling for those clothes. This dates back to Isaiah when Isaiah said that he made intercession for his transgressors. That Jesus was fulfilling it whenever he told the thief that was dying with him on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. It reminded Joseph of the time whenever, when the angel came to him and promised and prophesied that this son, he would save his people from his sins. He would save the people from their sins. And here's a man dying right next to Jesus on the cross. When Mary and and John were at that bereavement moment there at the cross and John was given to Mary and Mary was given to John in this community of caring for one another, it reminded Mary back to Luke chapter 2 verse 35 when Simeon had told her that your son will pierce your heart. You will see your son die. And I, I can tell you this, this many years in ministry, there's something very unnatural when a mother has to bury their child. There's no greater pain that I've ever witnessed in somebody's soul as Mary was experiencing on that day. When Jesus cried from the cross, my God, you've forsaken me. It takes us back to Psalm 21.1 and whenever he said, I thirst, Psalm 69 verse 21. And when he says it is finished, it takes us back to Psalm 22. All along, these are prophecies and fulfillments of what God was Saying would be said and saying would be done and it was being done and it was being lived out. And today we come to the last one so you can take your Bibles to Luke 23. We've been either in Luke or in John this entire series. And in Luke we see the seventh statement of Christ on the cross. It's the last statement. It's his gasping for air statement. He lifts himself up on the cross and he utters out a a sentence here at the very end and he says it. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 31, verse 5. Excuse me. As you look at these statements, these are, these are not statements of um, hopelessness. These are statements of hope. They're not of despair, but they are of destiny. They're not of destruction, but of life. These statements that he makes, that he utters from the cross... We need to see them in the totality of them. Whenever he was forsaken by the Father, it was so that we would be embraced by the Father. So there's beauty in the ashes. There's beauty in the, in, in, in the, in the defilement that's going on around us. And I think as we look at this, we're going to get to see something that probably most of us 
don't want to see, but need to see. We're going to look today at a topic that you're not going to want to talk about, but you need to talk about. And what better time to talk about it when there's lack of emotions, or whenever there's maybe some time to talk about it. That's the topic of what happens when your body dies. Because when we see in this story, we see the story of Christ breathing his last, and his physical body dying there on the cross, but something else happens. And is isn't what we want to talk about, it's what we are forced to talk about. Just like last, yesterday evening, a family, a married couple, daughter of one, just something not right about that. Do you want to talk about it? No, but most funerals are forced upon us. Most of these conversations happen to us. We tell in our, in our, in our society that there's two things that you, can, you cannot escape, and that's death and taxes, and the reality is you can evade taxes but you cannot evade death. And every day that we live and every moment that we have is a gift from God. And the statistics are quite clear. George Bernard Shaw said it quite clearly as well. Statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of every one people die. In case you didn't know that. Okay? T.S. Lewis pointed out during World War II that actually war does not increase death that every generation, it's a 100% casualty. Everybody is going to die. So let's talk about it today. We're here on the, on the precipice on the eve of, of, of Good Friday, and we'll, we'll celebrate that, and we'll take communion together here in this room on, on Friday. But let's talk about it today as we look at our, our Savior hanging on the cross, as we think about Him, but let's also think about ourselves. And let's look at death from maybe a multi-dimensional angles today. A couple of different angles that most of the time we don't see or look at death from. Most of the time it's very one-dimensional. It's us looking into the casket. It's us looking at a breathing family. And that's one angle. But let's take it and let's twist it around today. And let's see it from different angles today. Let's see it from the one who is dying, Christ on the cross. Who is literally experiencing death in the body. But let's also look at it from those who are all around, from the different angles of those who are sitting there, who are standing there, who are watching it unfold. So the two, de- the two angles of death that I want to see is the first one is there's a legacy that is set at our death. When you think about legacy, we want to write our legacies, don't we? We want to write our epitaph. When we die, things happen inside of people around us, family, friends that are around us, that begin to become reflective. I wish I had done this. I wish I had one more conversation. I wish I'd apologized for this. I wish I'd have reconciled here. If I had one more chance, this is what I would do. Let's think about it today. In light of your life and my life, what will be the epitaph of our life? Let's not live life by accident. Let's live life by intentionality. How can I be more intentional about that? Let's look at this from a reflective point of view, first of all. Number one is you see three different perspectives. And let's look at this passage and follow along as I read, beginning in verse 44 of Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So now we're fulfilling the complete story 
Jesus is about to breathe his last while the sun while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now there's all, all manner of prophecy in that that I won't even get into. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled in, uh, for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. When you see this passage, you see three different sets of eyes at the cross. I'm not talking about Christ's eyes. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to paint this scenario. This is what's going on around. And the three different perspective reflections that are going on. One is more of a perspective. One, when Jesus died, there was a man who was a centurion man who gained a better perspective on Jesus' life. He saw him differently. When you look at this passage, you see a verse there, verse 47. Notice this. Notice the dichotomy of this verse. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, what did he do? He praised God. Now, don't skip over that. Do you know who the centurion was? The centurion was the guy who was over the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers who pierced Jesus' feet, beat Jesus to a pulp. The centurion was the one who made sure that Jesus was dead. He was the commander at the foot of the cross. And all of a sudden, through the course of six hours, through the course of seven statements, he looks at this man, Jesus, hanging there. And something happens inside of him. There's a change. There's a, there's a redemptive element here. When no matter if you're the very one who's beating and lashing and, 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 and cursing and stripping him and gambling for him, they literally, he turns around and the centurion believes in Jesus and embraces Jesus. The dichotomy of that blows my mind. And what he declares, he says, this man whom I crucified, this man, I'm adding to this here, this man whom I put the nails in, this man whom I oversaw his death, he's innocent. He wrote his epitaph right there. This man is not guilty, but he is innocent. You go on and you're reading the Gospel of Mark. In Mark's account, he said it like this. Truly, this man was the Son of God. That was the epitaph on Christ. He lived an innocent, holy, set-apart life. He lived as the Son of God. And this centurion who once crucified him, who once rejected him, now embraces him and gains a perspective on him. So let me invite you, who've journeyed with us for six weeks now, seven weeks. I hope to God that this has not been a wasted series. But I hope that you have a deeper perspective on who Jesus is. I hope in your life you see him and who he is and all that he is. I hope that you're looking at your own life and wondering whenever I pass, what will be the one word that will be used over my life? 
What will be the one sentence that will describe him? Mike McDaniel was a man of God, or Mike McDaniel was a hypocrite. Mike McDaniel walked with God, or Mike McDaniel danced and did his own thing. What will be the epitaph of your own life? Think about it. The second thing that you see, the second perspective you see is is one of regret. When you look here in the story, you see the centurion, but then in verse 48, you see the crowds. The crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, almost like it's a Saturday afternoon or Friday, literally a Friday afternoon. Let's go. What are we going to do today? Well, I hear there's a crucifixion. Let's go check it out. And they're there as spectators. And when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breast. You can hear the regret in that. At one moment, they're, 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 they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're praising him. They're hailing him on Palm Sunday. On Friday, they're, they're yelling, nail him, nail him. And now they're beating their own chest. There's this regret that comes over them. How many times when death comes knocking on the other side, There's regret. I wish that I had one more conversation. I wish that I could have a do-over. I wish that I could right that wrong. And sometimes we don't get that chance. So my admonition to you today is to live with a very short list of offenses and offenders. Do everything within your power That you won't walk away from somebody's funeral, as is happening here, from somebody's death, beating your chest. Oh, that I could right that wrong. Oh, that I would not have done what I did there. As these people were regretting in their own life, in their own skin. Because do-overs stop at death. Grief is another angle that you see. Verse 49. And all the acquaintances, all the acquaintances, we don't know who they were, we don't know how many were there, and the women who had followed him from Galilee. These are his disciples. To some degree, were hanging out at a distance, stood at a distance, watching these things. What's the first stage of grief? Shock. Just shock. I can't believe. What just happened, happened. Shock. A defense mechanism inside of us that gives us the ability to push through if there's need to respond to something, if we need to do something, if we need to make decisions, if it's arrangements for a memorial service, whatever it is, we have this shock that comes over us that maybe is good, it washes us through. I believe right now what we're seeing with these people as they're just standing back watching Jesus die is a state of shock. This is one angle. It's one angle that to, to look at as these people are some in regret or some are, are, are repenting as the centurion, I believe, is doing. And some are going through all of these transitions that are going on. But what Jesus did is he lived his life so intentionally, so focused, so set towards Jerusalem, so set toward the cross that when his life was written, when his sentence was written, when his epitaph was written, 
It was well. He was innocent. He was good. He was godly. He was the man. He was the son of God. What's going to be your epitaph? What would would be written of you today? Could you write it? I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to be intentional. I'm trying to use these moments and ask you and ask myself, am I ready to die? Am I ready to breathe my last? And what will be said of me? Because I'm afraid that so many of us live by accident and not on purpose. We live not intentionally, but we just live. And we respond to whatever comes our way, and we'll deal with it then instead of approaching this world. We don't always get those choices on when we're going to end, and it's going to end, and how it's going to be wrapped up. We're going to start a series next Sunday. It's kind of an unorthodox way to celebrate Easter, but I think I want to capitalize on the ending of this series and your life. We have been focusing for seven weeks now on the life of Christ and what he said and, and the, the ripple effect of, into our life. And I want to switch and turn the page and I want to ask you the question along with this. What on earth are you here for? Why do you exist? Why do you get another day? Why do you get another year? Why do you? And, and hopefully through this, you will, hopefully we will, have a greater intentionality about the way we live our life and not just accidentally live our life. And then at the end of our life, accident is written over our life. How are we going to do this? We're going to do it in a lot of different ways. We're going to saturate the church with this, okay? The children are going to be studying this. So parents, guess what? We're going to be talking about the same thing your preschoolers are going to be talking about. On a preschool level, I get it, but your children are going to be talking about it. The student ministry is going to be talking about it. You're going to be able to have conversations in your home around your tables, and we're going to equip you with this, that you're going to be able to talk about this as a family and to figure out why you're here and to start building a purpose statement for your life and your family. We're going to talk about it in a way we've, we've got books that we're going to have available next week for you to pick up. You can buy them at cost. And it's just one of those things that's going to be an everyday study for 40 days. That will take us six weeks. Everyday studies right up past uh, uh, Memorial Day weekend. So for the next six weeks, we're going to zero in on this. We're going to saturate ourselves with this. And hopefully we're going to come out on the other side not wondering why we exist, but knowing why we exist and moving forward towards that. But I cannot. I, you, you can only do so much of this on your own. I'm going to challenge you to take one more step further. I'm going to challenge you to be a part of a small group of people that will gather around these questions and answer them together. All right? Because there will be lots of questions we're going to ask. And how, you can, how can you do this? One, you can form your own group. Just get five, six, seven, eight people, get together, say, Mike, raise your hand, say, I need help, we're ready to start. I'm going to be meeting with a group of men at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, and we're going to be discussing this thing. All of those guys are going to be single guys, and it's going to, we're going to write a song called All the Single Men, and we're going to, some of y'all get that, uh, and we're going to meet, and we're going to talk about this very topic uh, in, in, the, in the mornings on Wednesday morning. We want groups forming ever. We're going to have groups forming on Monday night and Tuesday night here at the church in one large group kind of setting, setting and with table kind of discussion leaders. Lots of ways you can be a part, how you can be a part. 
uh, and this is not a commercial, this all ties together, there's a little bright card when you came in, there's two sides to it. One, you say, Mike, I can ask questions. I may not have answers, but I can ask questions. All right, be a facilitator. Say, I'll, 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 get, I'll get five, six people, and we'll do this together. All right, we're going to actually have a training at lunch today. If you want to hang around for that, uh, let me know about that. On the other side, say, Mike, I'm not ready to ask questions. I'm just ready to figure this out. Then on the other side, you can put, I'm interested. Just drop it in the offering basket a little bit later on the service. So one angle that we see when you look at this passage is the angle of the outsiders, all right? Those at the foot of the cross. But there's one more set. There's one more angle that we don't want to miss. It's Christ. He gives us another angle that your life lives on. Your life lives on. That's an angle of death that you need to fully understand and embrace. Listen, all the major religions of the world embrace this. That whenever you die, there's a separation between you and your body. And again, all the religions of the world see it differently. There's different ones about this. All believe in an afterlife. The Baha'i believe that the soul and body separate. Buddhism believes in reincarnation. That you leave this body into another body or into another existence. Hinduism, the same thing. Islam believes that there's a paradise and a hell. Mormonism has three levels of, uh, of hell. The lowest uh, being, being that of hell. Excuse me, three, uh, three levels of, uh, of afterlife. One being hell. And then there's two levels of, of heaven. One where you become an angel and, uh, and, and so forth. Christianity believes in a heaven and a hell. There's lots of different beliefs that there is an afterlife out there. Of the, in the world. Also, there's a sense of a loss of paradise, a paradise lost, is a common belief. I was with a 30-year missionary in Africa a couple of weeks ago, Greg Fort, and he shared how in all of the animistic cultures of even in the deep bushes of Africa, they believe that there's a paradise lost. And so all the religions of the world believe that there's life after this life. And all the religions of the world believe that there's something out there that I'm missing, a paradise lost. How do I get there? And I think today, if you could just lean into the text a little bit, we see that this man, Jesus, is talking about that life after death. And we get an angle on this that I want to break apart in his last statement that he makes on the cross. And he makes this statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we get a picture of what life after this life looks like from that. And the condition of our own heart needs to be truly evaluated. I had an old, old pastor, about 85 years old. If you're 85, that's not very old. But this guy was really old, all right? And he was an old pastor in my very first church. And I was 21, maybe. And uh, he taught me a lot. I can't remember a lot of what he said, but there was one statement he said that I have hung on for a long time. He said, Mike, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. Preach, pray, or die in a minute. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but uh, it may not mean preaching may not mean a a lot to you, but I will say this. You need to be ready to die in a minute. Because most people don't get to plan their last minute doesn't happen that way. So how can you be ready to die? Call it a checklist. Your eternity, your afterlife is based on the condition of your spirit. I'm going to take just Jesus' statement 
And I want to break it down. Notice what Jesus did. The very last thing he said, my spirit. He identifies something that is inside of him. Now, we all have a physical body. You're physically here. I know, I'm stating the obvious. Insulting your intelligence. What do you do whenever your physical body needs help and healing or whatever? Well, you get a healthy diet, you exercise. You want to care for your mind, what do you do? You acquire knowledge and wisdom. You want to care for your soul, your emotional side? You get emotional health. What do you do when you want to care for your spirit? What do you do to help your spirit to be whole? Identifying with Jesus, as I, I want to say, is the primary way that we're going to grow in that relationship and have a, 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 a spirit. Because you may not fully embrace this, but please hang on to this thought and let me at least challenge your thoughts today. And that is this, you have a spirit. You have something inside of you that's a part of you that will live on even when your body doesn't. And you need to be aware of that and know the condition of it. I'm going to ask you probably 15 times in this message, what is the condition of your spirit? Because if Jesus at the very last breath, the last thing he's going to say, he's going to say this. He started with prayer when he prayed to the Father, Father forgive them. And he ends with prayer. And the very last words that come out of Jesus' mouth is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's talk about the spirit. What is the spirit? Because you, when you were created, when I was created, when God created mankind, he put a spirit inside of us. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 1. He formed the spirit of man within. You have a spirit inside of you. You think, Mike, I have a mind. I, I realize that. I, I have a, a cranium. I have things that go on inside. But what's this whole spirit thing? I have emotions. I feel emotional from time to time. I understand the soul element. But what's this spirit talk? Well, the problem is, is in this world, we don't understand it fully. We can't dissect it completely. There's not a scalpel out there that will cut between the two, yet the Word of God is able to do that. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division between the soul, the suke, the mind, the emotions, and the spirit. There is a spirit inside of everyone in this room that even as Jesus' body was breathing its last, his spirit was living on. Where does your spirit go whenever you die? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. The spirit returns to God who gave it. It's a part of God's creation. And he, when he created us, he made us, and he put inside of us the spirit. What is the condition of your spirit? Very important element. Don't miss it. Don't miss that question. We've got to be able to answer the condition of our spirit. Because even Paul said this when he was praying for the church at Thessalonica. He said, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, notice how he divides this up into three parts, spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Your cranium will quit thinking one day. Your heart will stop beating one day. Your soul, or excuse me, your spirit lives on. What's the condition of your spirit? Number two, checklist, is the condition of your spirit is based on your trust. 
Notice when Jesus said this, I commit my spirit. I commit, I trust, I give over. I'm through with it here because my body is finished here. My spirit, I commit my spirit. Now, all of us work in this room, hopefully, or or hopefully gainfully employed, and you work really hard all month long. And what do you do when, at the end of that month, you get this little piece of paper, rectangular, and it says on there, pay to the order of your name. And then you go over a little bit further to the right, and it has a dollar amount in there. And we do something with that. We take this little piece of paper, and we take it to a bank, to a building that we didn't build, and we give it to a stranger across the aisle, across a, a little bench, and we give it to them. Oh, before we do it, we sign the back of it, basically saying everything that I worked for, every, all my sweat, blood, and tears for the past month, I'm giving it to you now, all right? To somebody who's making just above minimum wage. What are we thinking? What they do then is they punch some numbers into the computer, and then they print out this little bitty sheet of paper. So we traded one sheet of paper for another sheet of paper. Now, we worked really hard all month for this little sheet of paper, right? Now, you can't do a cotton-picking thing with this sheet of paper. You can't take it to the store and buy anything. It just says that you had a sheet of paper, and you gave it to them, and that they're going to give you a sheet of paper for that sheet of paper. Now, I know I'm insulting your intelligence, but what have we done? We've entrusted one hard month's worth of labor to a stranger on another side of the counter who's punching things in about me into their computer, and they're taking my money, and they're saying it's going to be there when I want it. And we have this funny thing in America because we have this FDIC and because we we have insurances and because we believe in certain banks that it will be there. We have trusted it. When Jesus died on the cross, he trusted. He says, I entrust my spirit. I want to say to you again, the condition of your spirit is based on your trust. Who are you trusting with your spirit? Ephesians chapter 4 verse Chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith, through trusting, through believing. It is not yourself. The third checkpoint is this. Your trust is directed to the Father. Who are you trusting in? Hopefully you're trusting in someone who will not fail you. If you're trusting in Buddha, if you're trusting in your good behavior, if you're trusting in trust, you're trusting in something. We're all banking our entire existence and eternity in the future on something. Some are going to trust it on their baptism, shamely. That's not what you need to trust it in. That is just Bentonville City water. There's nothing magical about it. Some people are trusting in their church membership. Some people are trusting in on their good works and how it all weighs out in the end. Some people are trusting in all these different things. My friends, the, Jesus dying on the cross said, Father, God the Father, into your hands I'm going to entrust my spirit that you will take it and you'll protect it. When Hezekiah was dying of a terminal illness, Isaiah the prophet goes to him. 
and tells him this. Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. That had to be troubling news for Hezekiah, but it was smart advice for Hezekiah. Set your house in order. Is your life in order? What is the condition of your spirit? Are you ready to die? Morbid? Could be. Celebration is really what it is. Because when you're in Christ, and when you breathe your last, whether you're 13, 30, 33, 45, 46, as the man yesterday that I was a part of that service, when, uh, 46, whatever it, it is that God gives you life to live, I hope that you're ready and your house is in order. When Jesus died, when Jesus stepped into eternity, he was ready. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, is to be at home with the Lord. If you're here today and you're going to celebrate baptism with us, that's a beautiful thing. And it's one that marks your this day, this opportunity to acknowledge before everyone your faith in Christ. So if you're in this room right now and you're going to be baptized, would you do me a favor? Would you head through that door right over there? And there's going to be some people over there to get you, receive you, and prep you for what we're about to do. But I want to talk to everyone else in the room for a moment as they get ready. 31 people today will be baptized at Grace Point, and we're going to celebrate every single one of them with a round of applause, and we're pumped about it. But let me just talk to you. Is your spirit ready for eternity? I told you last week of my story, whenever I became a follower of Christ at 8, I gave my life to Christ sitting in the kitchen table in my home at 717 North 5th Street in Rogers. The house is still there. And... Uh, I can remember that day very well. And I can remember then going and talking to the pastor. Little Johnny Lawson, Montney Baptist Church in Rogers. And going and sharing with him what the decision that I had made. He rejoiced. We were excited. And again, I was eight years old. But what he did, he said, come back, Mike, in two weeks. And we're going to baptize you. It'll be an exciting time. I can tell you right now. As much as I can remember vividly the day that I gave my life to Christ, I can just as vividly remember the day that I was baptized. Not because that saved me, but because that marked me. That began a journey for me. That was a declaration day for me. Whenever I told the world in that little church that I was a follower of Christ. You've been through this series of messages with me. A lot of you have. You might have entered into this room much like the centurion guy, just a spectator at the foot of the cross. But when you get to the last statement of Christ, and he says, here, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the centurion man turns around and follows, becomes a follower of Christ even after he crucified Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to give your life to Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? Would you just be very still in the moment? Would you reflect with me on your own life?
And let me ask you the question I said I'd ask about 15 different times. What's the condition of your spirit? Are you ready, if you were to breathe your last, to be with God? If you're not right where you're set, right there, would you just utter your own prayer up to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, you were innocent and I am guilty. Just as that centurion prayed. Jesus, you're the son of man. You're the son of God. And I want to follow you. Just tell him in your own words. Put it out there for him. I want to pray for those in this room that are praying that prayer right now. Lord Jesus, you know the hearts of everyone here. And I'm not an eloquent enough speaker to make it all clear. But I know your word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide and separate the division of soul and spirit. And I pray everyone in this room, through the spirit of God, through the word of God, is right now able to assess their spirit's condition with you, God. And if it's not right, if it's not whole, if it's not fully yours, Lord, I pray that they will entrust themselves to you completely here and now. Lord Jesus, we give this time to you. And we thank you for these that are going to be baptized as a, as a declaration of their faith. And Lord, we watch and we celebrate with them. But Lord, if there's anybody else in this room that needs to celebrate that today, then Lord, give them the boldness to stand up and declare their faith in you here and now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.